0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. We're studying the book of Galatians together. The theme is freedom. And we're at a point now where we're applying this book uh, in the New Testament. It's towards the end of your Bible. I, well, it was a rainy Saturday morning, or Saturday afternoon, I was watching a movie on television that helps us understand uh, you know, how to apply the gospel to our relationships. The, the movie was a remake of a, of a movie made in the 1930s called uh, Death Takes a Vacation. It was made again in the 90s called Meet Joe Black, and Brad Pitt is in this movie, and that's maybe one of the reasons I watched it. Uh, but he is, he, he is death personified. He's the grim reaper in this movie. Uh, he's not so grim, but uh, he's death nonetheless. He's and he, the plot is, it's a romantic movie, and I wasn't all that concerned about that. The part that I was interested in was how he visits certainly one of the most powerful and influential and wealthiest men in America. This particular man, his name is Bill. And as death, right, he is visiting him to tell him his, his day has come, his time is up. And in that conversation, uh, they're interrupted by a family member, and so they have to think fast and say, who's this? Uh, it's Joe Black. And so they name death, the death angel right there, right, Joe Black, and that's how it gets its title. What was fascinating for me, and the reason I'm bringing this up, is, is death stays around for a while. That's the purpose of the movie. And, and he has this enviable, humble confidence. I mean, he is... He is he is so confident about who he is, death, and, and he's humble about it. And I thought, that's oh, I would love to live that way. Uh, it, I mean, he's humble. It makes sense, right? Why, why would he be proud? He's, he didn't have to show off. He's death uh, there. And then he's, he's um, confident. Well, sure, he'd be confident because he's going to meet every man, woman, and child. And they're all going to lose. He's going to win. The game is fixed, right? He, he's going to always win that little interchange. And anyway, the, he's 30 years younger, uh, Brad Pitt, than, than these super powerful and influential wealthy people, you know, billionaires he's running around with. And he, and he just doesn't care. And why, again, why should he care? He's deaf. But they're, on, they're in a private helicopter, flying off to a private island. And He's not all that starstruck and because everybody he touches will be broke, right? No one takes it with them. None of these things matter to him, and why should they? Uh, the, these, these men and women of, of influence, they have politicians on speed tile, and the politicians obey. They pick up on the first ring. Doesn't care to Joe Black, doesn't care to death. Because every time he meets one of these men, he touches them and they drop dead right away. There's no power. Here's the point. There's no power that can over, influence death. And there's no amount of money that you can buy any more time, not a day, not a minute. He is death. He's Joe Black. He stands by himself. And when I was watching this, I was thinking, you know, in contrast to death in many of these scenes... It, it just, it made, it made humanity in all of our endeavors seem to be pervasive in its distractions. And that's all they showed themselves to be, just distractions. And I, I, I couldn't help but think it's, you know, when we tease a cat with a laser pointer, and this silly cat with its tiny little brain, it's chasing this red dot, and there's no substance to the dot. There's nothing there, right? And we laugh, and then we turn around and we chase people wanting to like us, or some expression of power, or control, or wealth, or sufficiency, right? Just like a silly cat. There's no substance there either. And the presence of death in these, in these massive and exploitive pro- projections showed what we desire so much, over-desire so much, to be nothing more than laser pointer dots in the world of humanity. But while, all of that's true, the part that was haunting me most of the time when I'm watching the movie was uh, a phrase that I love from the Old Testament, and it's this: "Love is stronger than death. Love is stronger than death." And when I'm watching this humble confidence in every room that he walks into and every interchange that he has with every man, woman and, and that he in, endeavors, he has this humble confidence, right? If, if that's true with death, how much more with the love of God? How much more with a person that it's consumed with the gospel of God, that knows he's loved by God? If death can do that, why can't life? And that's, that's what we're going to learn about today, okay? We're going to learn about how to bring the power of the gospel into our lives and into our relationships in the context of community we don't have to be proud. We don't have to be, you know, insecure with our relationships because love is stronger than death. The power of God's love is stronger. In our, if we could rearrange our self-image to reflect what the Bible says is true, it would transcend things. It would transcend our communities. Now, in this book of Galatians, we're about eight weeks in, so if you're new, um, let me try to explain in a couple of sentences. When we say the word gospel, it literally means Good news. That's how it translates. And it's, it's this a couple sentences in Titus uh, nicely summarize it. Um, it. It says, But then the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us. The Savior, Jesus, He saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of His mercy. Look, look at that. The, look, what it says The kindness and the love of God shows up in the Savior. He saves us. So we, we don't uh, cling to any of our righteous deeds. The gospel is this, that we are made right, actually perfect with God in his sight because of not what we've done, but rather what Jesus Christ has already done, that he died for us to pay the price for our sins. He rose again on the third day so that we might inherit his righteousness. That's the truth of it. That's how we stand before God. And if we could, if we could understand that in, in a apply that to our own self-identity, then we would have humble confidence. We'd have humble confidence in the difficulties in life, but in the context of today's sentences, it's humble confidence in the context of communal living with one another. Because if we would change our self-identity, our self-image, and not focus so much on ourselves, but rather what these things that are true that God says... It's a game changer. Absolutely everything is altered. So what we're going to look at today, we're going to look at the very end of chapter 5, and then we'll uh, go into chapter 6. I think there's a, they should be together, but I think there's a, a break in the chapters because in chapter 5, the last sentence says what we're not supposed to do, okay, what we're not supposed to do in community living. In chapter 6, verse 1, it starts telling us what we are supposed to do in community living, okay? So mostly we're looking at two sentences together. We're going to look at what not to do, that is be conceited, and it, I'm going to preview that with verse 25, and that'll set up 26. Let's look at this. It's on the screens here. Okay, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step. Let's keep walking in the Spirit. That's the summary of all of chapter 5, okay? If we're going to li- since we're living in the Spirit, let's just keep walking in the Spirit, okay? Verse 26 says what not to do. Let us not be conceited. Some versions say boastful. Let us not be conceited provoking and envying one another. Let's take a close look at that. Let us not be conceited. Great word, because I think in, if you have some, an older translation called the King James Translation, it, it will translate it literally, and literally it means uh, vain glory. So vain means absence of, you know, the desire for, right? Glory, weight, honor, um, uh, that you matter and said, do not be conceited, do not be uh, consumed with this absence of honor, this, this right, um, fixated on that you don't matter, because that's going to provoke you, it's going to cause you to be provoking and envying. Okay, so let's look at this again. So there's this spiritual condition that we have, and we know it to be true, that, that we hunger for honor. We we deeply desire glory and we don't have it. We know we don't count. And the whole universe cries out that we are a nobody. That just the, the sheer number of people on the planet or the number of people that have existed. And then we, on our little dot, we don't matter. And we know we're nobody. We just take a shower that goes too long. We get stuck in traffic and our radio doesn't work. And we just, we can feel it coming in on us. And so what happens is, because of what's happening, we, we become the standard that we measure everything by. So, and this is, how, this, this is what leads to provoking and envying. But we, we look at ourselves as the center of the universe because we're looking, we're so starving for honor that we look at ourselves to define what is beauty and success and intelligence and wit and athleticism, whatever it might be, right, this is going to be it for us. That's what vainglory is. The realization that we don't count, that we're pretty much insignificant, and we'll probably be, we will certainly be forgotten, we don't know what to do with that, and so we do two things. It automatically produces provoking and envying. Provoking is this idea that I'm better than you, and, and I'm looking down at you, and so I'm kind of provoking you. Is that all? Is that all you got? Is that all you are? Again, in this characterization of what beauty looks like or intelligence, athleticism, whatever it is, right? So we're, we're arrogant that way, and we're looking down. That's what provoking is because we're conceited, because conceited means this absence of honor. Or we look up at other people. We look at somebody that's ahead of us and we're, oh, I, I could never have what they have, and I resent what they have or resent who they are or what they've become. And so Paul is saying here, look, this is not how we're supposed to be treating each other, right? Do not become conceited. Or boastful, challenging one another, envying one another, provoking one another, provoking. We our arms are folded. Really, that's that's it, right? That's all you have. That's all you are. That's how, boy. That must be hard, right? And then and then envying his hands in the pockets. Wow, well, I'm not much. I'm nothing, especially compared to you. See again, the standard is us, and we're and we keep. In summary, the standard is us, and we keep depending upon who we're up against right we're we're provoking looking down or we're envying looking up. but listen, this whole superiority inferiority thing it's because we're conceited conceited means right. we, we we're hungry, we're starving for honor, for respect, for value uh, for glory at and and we we're self-absorbed because, because we are the standard-bearer of what these things are. Look, there's so much in common with a person that's arrogant and a person that has an inferiority complex. Okay? The, the superiority complex and the inferiority complex, same thing. They're just expressions of who they're comparing themselves to, Right? And so we, we selectively choose, sometimes temperamentally, sometimes, you know, whatever room we're in, doing great until we go to college. And then, that, then the standard of smart isn't us anymore. We're losing most of the time. And maybe we do well there. We go to graduate school. Now, see, your response of provoking or envying is whether or not you're winning or losing. The problem is, I'm going to go back, not winning or losing, that you're even keeping score this way. And that you're even in this equation at all is the problem. You are not the rule. You're not the standard. And so the theme here is that if you're conceited, if you're boastful, if you're hungry for this vain vainglory, this, this glory and honor, you can't be in community. Because every relationship you bump into, you're either looking at them, right, either looking down at them, provoking, or looking up at them, envying them. You lose both ways because you're the center of the universe and you're the standard for these, these attempts at trying to be something. Now, before we can apply that, like to chapter 6, verse 1, let's look at how to apply it now and how the gospel changes that, okay? Because that's we, can't, we have to fix that before we can move on. And we're gonna sh- I want to show you how fixing that that conceited thing, if we can fix that, we can apply it to 6, verse 1 and it's going to make more sense for us okay that's why they're together okay the gospel does this in our problem with being conceited with being boastful it changes the focus right it isn't the gospel says why are you thinking about yourself so much why are you consumed with you who made you the standard bearer you don't want that and and so it 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 absolutely changes the dynamic of what you're focusing on. And now, what is it we learned last week? Excuse me for referring to that if you're new. But it says, why don't you focus on Jesus instead? That's what the Spirit's job description is, to get you to focus on Jesus, especially absence of yourself. So if you're confronted, right, if you're you're, uh, criticized for something and you're the center of things then you're, it's, you go right to fight or flight. If you're criticized, you're going to go straight to fight. You're going to say, you know, being judgmental. You'll, you'll fight back and be critical of that person, and we'll just keep going back and forth, provoking, right? Or, or we flight. We go, oh, woe is us. Feel terrible about it all day. Take that one bit of truth, or maybe the whole thing is truthful. But it, it devastates us because the center of our life has been kicked out of whack. And, of course, we're going to flee or fight for this. But the gospel says, no, 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 let's take you out of the center. Let's put Jesus Christ in what he's done, the death and the resurrection, this, this idea that he's given you uh, forgiveness and there's no condemnation for you. Then when you're criticized, you, you, you can respond humbly, right, and, and think in, internally you're going, is is that all you have against me? Because you, you don't know a tenth of what's going on in my mind. I, you're right about those things. But there's so much worse than that. I am, um, I'm the chief of all sinners. If you want to race, I think I've got the pole position on sinfulness. And it's part of the beauty of, of becoming more saintly. The closer you get to heaven, the closer you get to the way you were meant to be, right? The more sensitive and tender you are towards sin, and so that's why, like when Paul writes at the end of his letters, he t- calls himself the chief of all sinners. And so when somebody criticizes you, you have a sense of humility because the spirit of God, Jesus Christ, is the center of your soul. You're going, I, okay, that's, you're right, and you can be humble about it. But you can also be confident. You don't have to, have to be devastated. You don't have to sh- sheep or shy away because I don't care what you say about me. I don't care what you think about me. I don't care what you value about me because God has said things about me that are true in who I am, right? God has said, uh, chapter 3, he says, you are a son of Abraham, and it, this is one of those times where they don't change son to son or daughter because you are the son, you inherit everything that Abraham was to inherit, that is righteousness, Chapter three says that you are clothed so that you look like Jesus. You know you're clothed in Christ, so you're not devastated by criticism because you know where your worth is. That you don't. You're not vain glory. You're not hungry for honor. You have honor. You inherited the honor of Jesus Christ, right? So you're confident and you're humble because you know who you really are as a person outside of Christ. That's that's how you apply the gospel to your self-image, that's how you keep from being conceited. And here's the point, the consequences of that is you get a little bit of this attributes of, of Joe Black, right? You're humble and confident, but it's more than that because love is stronger than death. Love is stronger than the power and the certainty of death. We got, are we there? So that's how you apply Chapter 5, verse 25 and 26. Let's look at it again because we're going to move on to chapter 6 now. Look what it says. Now, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step. Let's keep walking by the Spirit. Let's not do this. Let's not become conceited, right, hungering for honor because that leads to provoking and envying each other. It has to lead to one of those two. Okay. That's what not to do. Now that we've adapted and altered our self-identity as being a person under the umbrella of Jesus Christ, okay, what do we do with that? What do we do in community? Okay, first thing he talks about is helping another soul that's caught in sin. This is beautiful. He's concerned about other people that need help. Look at verse 6, 1, chapter 6, verse 1. What do we do with our humble confidence? Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in sin... You who live by the Spirit should restore that person with a spirit of meekness. But watch yourself, or you may be tempted yourself. Let's take a look at that second sentence there, or actually that one sentence. Okay, brothers and sisters. First thing that's uh, helpful to know is, is the word caught, because it doesn't mean, um, like, caught you, right? It's not that kind of caught. It's like, caught you. Look, handed cookie jar. Caught you red-handed. You know, one and done sort of thing. We're also good at failing um, that if, if that's what the word meant, we'd be very busy, wouldn't we? So, the word also has a meaning. You'll get it in the dictionary. It also means caught, like trapped, like stuck in a trap, like you're um, pulled over on the side of the road and your wheels are spinning, right? You're, you're, you're caught that way. And so, you know what? Let's do this. Um, the metaphor in chapter 5 and 6 in in a spirit-filled life is is walking. Remember, and it's even in here, walking in the spirit, keeping step in the spirit. Let's do this then. Let's just keep using that metaphor and work it in this context of caught. A person that's caught in sin is a person that has deviated from the path of God that God would will for us. God's will for your life is to stay within the boundaries of, of safety. That's why he gave us one of the reasons he gave us the Bible. Stay inside those boundaries it'll be hard, but you won't get necessarily hurt, okay? This is a person that has left the trail and has been caught by, let's be graphic, shall we, like a bear trap. You know, you've seen them on, you might have seen them on a wall somewhere, but you've seen them on TV, right? Those things that expand, they expand out, you step in the middle of them, and they slap hard on an ankle, maybe sometimes even breaking the bone. There's blood flying out. Those, these traps are chained to the ground in some post. Are you there? Is anybody? Yeah. Uh, That's caught. That's what caught means. It means we can't move. It means that what what used to be something that served us is now owning us. So we are off the trail, we're stuck, we're trapped, we're caught. That's what caught means. Now, Paul's going to say, what happens, because this happens a lot, what happens when somebody is caught in this context of sin? We're going to find out who should help them, what help, you know, means, what that word means. And then I want us to look, finally, at kind of um, the, the way, kind of the mood of the help. Those three questions are answered in this single sentence. Who helps them, right? What does help look like, and how do we help? Let's look at the first one. Who should help them? Those who are spiritual. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, okay, you who are spiritual, it says, let me. Let's start first of all. Who it doesn't say. Who doesn't it? Say, what's missing here? It doesn't say if somebody's caught to trespass. You who are spiritual that are pastors, that are elders, that are deacons, that are leaders, that are Sunday school teachers, right? Because the Bible says, and we believe it here, that every believer is a minister. And so this, honestly, this actually, this passage is somewhat of a definition of what a mature believer is. A mature believer can hear the cries of someone stuck and says, "We need. I need to go get them. A spiritual person is the only qualification. Now, that's not an easy qualification, but I just want to make sure everybody understands that everybody's in on this, everyone that's spiritual, spiritual in the context of Galatians, simple, uh, the fruit of the Spirit earlier in chapter 5, love and joy and peace and patience, right? But again, I want you to see that I think in the context of this that a mature believer, a spiritual person, sees another person hurting and says, I'm going to take my self-worth that's not conceited, right? that's humble and confident, and maybe I'm the person God is calling to do something about it. A spiritual person is all the qualifications. It's a big qualification, but I want you to understand it's, 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 it's not a title. Now watch this. A conceited person doesn't qualify. That's why that previous verse applies here, because a conceited person sees somebody caught in a bear trap. You know, he stays safely on in the eye, right on the lane, because that's who he is. When he's got his arms folded and he's looking condescendingly down at the person, I'd never get trapped like that. You know? You know what I think? I think he kind of got what's coming to you. I could never find myself there. Provoking. See? Conceited person can't help. They're not spiritual. Or, right, the inferiority one, right, the other one, the enviable one. He looks at a person caught in the trap and he's looked up to that person and maybe made him into somebody that's not even human, right? That looked up to him too much and said, Oh, I could never be that person. Oh, he are caught in a trap. I don't, I, what could I say? What could I? I couldn't add anything to that. I couldn't help them, right? So you don't confront because you're condescending, or you're envying, either way. See how they work together now? A conceited, boastful life doesn't allow you to enjoy the privilege of helping another soul. Who's to do it? The spiritual. What is to be done to be restored? Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person. The word restore here is an easy word for us to define because it's used so many times in the Bible in concrete uh, ways. It's used medically to say if we're going to set a broken bone, sometimes to replace a dislocated uh, joint. Uh, it's used in, in the fishing industry to say mend a tent to make it useful. Uh, did I, what did I say? Fishing for a net, and then also in tent making to mend a tent to make it waterproof or windproof again. Here's the theme. Okay? To re- restore means bring it back to its original condition. Bring it back to its usable condition, maybe better. Bring it back to its usable condition. So medically speaking, is set that bone to restore that bone so you could use that appendage again, right? In fishing, I want I want you to mend that net, restore that net so you can fish another day. I want you to restore the tent, to patch the tent so that you could live under that tent again back to effectiveness for another day. Okay, So we confront, we encourage, we walk alongside. A spiritual person does that so that to get them restored back. We're going to open that thing up, right? We're going to set that leg. We're going to let them hobble on us for a while because that's what, the, that's what it looks like. The, the spiritual person restores, how so? How so? In a spirit of meekness. Uh, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, let those who are spiritual restore a person in a spirit of meekness. In a spirit of meekness. I think this is the best uh, translation out there. You'll see a bunch. Some will just say simply humility. But the word spirit is actually in the original language. So it's it's this atmosphere, spirit of humility, spirit of meekness. Meekness is a great word because it means power, strength, under control it can be delicate but it could also be violently delicate yeah. some of these actions need to take need require great strength for us but they need to be done as gently as possible but it's not easy sometimes so in summary right we have to have the right qualifications for the person to do it spiritual that's it no title just spiritual not conceited right and we're supposed to restore that person so they can get back to being effective in the plans that god has for them and we should do this with a spirit of meekness. We've got to bring them back. Now, let me just emphasize again, sometimes um, this can look uh, hard. It can look difficult. If you've ever seen a joint replaced on, on television, uh, first of all, why are you watching that? I, uh, unfortunately, I have seen that too, I think a hip replacement. And dear God, I hope I never have to have a hip replaced It looks a lot like auto mechanics, except with shiny tools. And if you've had that done, you're my hero. uh, Because there's, there's, these men are strong men and women involved in replacing this. It, It requires a lot of work. They're being sensitive, but they're working hard and putting a person in a great deal of pain so that they could recover. Have you seen the fingers of a real fisherman? They're sausages. They're thick. With muscles, because they have mended a lot of nets, and that takes strong hands. We don't have tent makers like in the old days, but their hands from sewing are also extremely powerful. Point is, point is, sometimes the conversations can get—they can be humble still or meek, but they can be rather uh, animated. Uh, They have to be convincing. That's the word. They have to be convincing, and listen the. Jesus is so committed to this that when he taught on this subject in Matthew chapter 18, his own words, he said, listen, we've got to help people get out of these traps. And if you go, if someone spiritual goes to that person and says, hey, you're in a trap, it owns you, you've got to get out of here, it's costing you too much, and they don't listen to you, Jesus says, go get some help. Bring two people. And then he says, well, what if that doesn't work? He says, that's okay, go get more people. Like four or five people, bring these people that know and love this person that is snarling away at their spiritual life and confront them. And if, and if one person doesn't work or two or many, go to the whole church. No, no, it says, no, go to the leadership of the church. Go to the leaders of the church and have them step in because that might wake them up a little bit. That might be that wake-up call that says, oh, this is spiritually way more important than I was making it out to be. And Jesus doesn't even end it there. He says, if you you can't help him out of that trap, if your friend can't help him out, if your friends can't, if the church can't, or if the leadership can't, and and then he said, go to the whole church. Get everyone in the church involved in this because I would celebrate beyond your imagination if this one person came to repentance and and he got himself, you know, he allowed the spirit to get him out of this trap. That's how committed I am to this. So, This idea of restoring a person to to the ability to do ministry again, ability to live a whole life again, it's a priority in the Bible. It's a priority in the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's what Jesus taught. Before we move on to apply, let me just show you. There's this last warning here. Let's look at the verse again so that we can see it all in context now that we know so much. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person with a spirit of meekness. Now watch yourself. Or you may be tempted as well. You may also be tempted. That's the idea of, in, in life-saving, it's called a double drowning, when a, a rescuer goes out to some difficult waters and they get swept away as well. You'll see it in the papers quite often because some people shouldn't be out there. So his final warning is, absolutely, go help. If and only if, you won't be taken away as well. Be careful not to get proud. Okay. Let's apply this now. We applied that first part. Let's apply this chapter, what we're not supposed to do. Let's apply what we are supposed to do in our own life, in the life of people around us. And then I want to tell you a little bit about what we do at Grace in the life of the church, okay? Three ways to apply it. First, in our own life. Are you trapped? Right? Are you stuck? Are you caught in sin? What used to serve you, are you serving it now? You know, some... It's easy to go right to some kind of physical addiction, right, or a chemical addiction. Those are so easy and vivid for us to see. But I want you to know that it's not alcohol or some kind of uh, illicit drugs or pharmaceuticals. It can also just be your temper. It worked in maybe high school or college. You got what you wanted, and now it's destroying you and the people around you. Your perfectionism got you to the front of the class, and now no one likes to be around you and judged by you anymore. Are you trapped? Because if you're trapped and you're realizing something is bigger than you, I want you to consider maybe three opportunities here. One, would you consider going to a friend and saying, I can't get out of this trap of sin, this bear trap. I can't, I can't maybe spring it myself. Could you help me? Could Maybe we could meet. Or maybe, you know, that's what our home groups are for. Our life groups, you could go to your life group and say, I'm going to tell you something that goes on in our living room that you don't know about because we're all so polite. You know, I I am consumed with criticism, you know, and I just nitpick my wife and my family, and I hate what it does to the souls of my children, my perfectionism. Maybe we could all talk about how I got here and how you can help me get out of here. Maybe you could help restore me to be a good dad, a good husband. So you could do that. You could, another thing you could do is you could just fill out our bulletin, the little tear-off, and say, give us your contact information, and maybe we could help you by setting you up with someone that could help you. Another thing is we have a, an, an amazing ministry here called Celebrate Recovery, and it is honestly built just for this situation. Celebrate Recovery is for people that have hang-ups and hurts and, and, and habits, and sometimes these hurts that haunt us from the back. and We don't even know where they come from sometimes, but they, they end up showing themselves by hurting other people. Again, if you think Celebrate Recovery is for people that have chemical addictions, you're right. But mostly, it's for people that have, are caught in some kind of personality trait, I guess. Something that they can't stop. Being, again, impatient or vain or critical. I would ask that maybe you should Thursday nights, Thursday nights, go... They, it's a group of people that aren't conceited <laughs> because they can't be. They get this, this idea that they're humble and they're confident. They're humble because they know where they've been and what they've done, and they're so confident about the power of God in their life and what he could do in your life, they want to tell you about it. Would you consider going to celebrate recovery? Easy application for today if you're stuck. What about if you have somebody that's a, a loved one, that's a friend of yours maybe that's stuck? here? I mean, Maybe today you came here to hear what you're supposed to do, you who are spiritual, okay? And you're not going to be looking down at them or you're not going to be looking too much up at them and you're going to say, hey, you know what? Why don't we start meeting regularly? Maybe we could read a book together. We could enjoy one of the disciplines of the faith. Maybe we could ride together to celebrate recovery. We were not made to go through life alone. We were made to go through life in some kind of community. That's before there was a fall, maybe more so now. Uh, That's that's your life. That's people's lives. Let me tell you about our church. I want to tell you just as I'll I'll speak to you, not as a pastor, but as an elder here. And I don't do that very often, but I want you to know this, that we define spiritual maturity here, not by the ability to know what the Bible says, but by the ability to do what the, the Bible says. And this passage, in passages like Matthew 18, teaches clearly that if a person is stuck, if a person is stuck in sin, leaders, mature believers, are the ones that say, I have to do something to help this person. Okay? And what we've found is if, if, if you're in a Bible study or a home group or an adult community or any context where what we used to think was a leader would come alongside and say, you know, I'm going to pray for you and your family. That's not enough, friends, because this says you need to go and do something about it. Do more than just pray about it. And so some some of our Bible studies, we've replaced the leaders because those aren't spiritual leaders. Those are just content experts, and we can get content experts to teach, okay? But what we want is spiritual leaders that will say, if someone gets stuck, we want this small group, we want this uh, adult community, uh, we, we want this church to be safe for God to send his children to us. And if they get caught along the side of the road in a bear trap, people that are spiritual are going to say, we've got to go back. No man left behind here. Okay? And so sometimes that becomes difficult and, and a little bit um, awkward, but, but it's what the Bible says. And that's how we keep score. We, we are obeying what the Bible teaches, not just learning what the Bible teaches. And here, let me tell you here at our church, certainly one of the high points Uh, spiritually speaking, I think some of the high points of our church have been when we restored someone to ministry, when we brought them back to let them do uh, what God designed them to do. As a matter of fact, we kind of have a celebration here. We have these uh, expensive rocks. They're not really expensive, actually. They're uh, valuable. There's a difference. Um, They're just rocks, really. But uh, we got them from the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Right the Sea of Galilee, there's this one wedge that has a different geology or something. And it, it's right there. There's a church there called something like the Church of Restoration. I'm sure it's got a Latin name that I can't remember. But the point is, it is the church that commemorates the place, the location where Peter was restored by Jesus himself. I think most of us are familiar with G, uh, Peter's three-time denial of who he was related to, you know, he, he even knew who Jesus was. But you need to know this. It didn't end there. Jesus meets up with Peter again on the north shore And and Peter swims in when he sees Jesus, and Jesus has this one-on-one restoration where Jesus looks him straight in the soul and says, do you love me? Okay, good. Will you be a shepherd? And he says, do you love me? Second denial, second question. And Peter says, yeah, I love you. Could you take care of my sheep for me? He's restoring him to make him back. Do you love me? Yes, I I love you, Jesus. And Peter Peter says that. And and Jesus says, okay, you're back. He set that bone. It was difficult for Peter. You know he was squirming. He he wanted to be anywhere but there. He needed to be every, his whole body needed to be there. So he was there, you see? And so the point is, because it's such an unusual, it's like a black lava rock. And so we picked up a bunch. We brought them back in and, 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 and one of the offices over at the 360 building. When somebody was restored, we give them one of these rocks because we want them to remember that they were trapped and people went in after them. And we've had, I can't tell you too many of the details because, um, you know, they're kind of none of our business. But friends, we, we've had people where a, a, a loved one went to there and said, you're You're stuck. In perfectionism and hypercriticism, and then that didn't work, and they got reinforcements, and that didn't work, and they brought in the leadership of the church, and then it was gonna go to the church, and, they, and, it, and it snapped, and they broke, and they said, You're right, all these years, all these years, I've been stuck, trapped, caught, and no one would push it this far, and now I have to change, and now I realize this. And we hand them one of these rocks, and here's why we do all of that, friends. Because Jesus says, He tells stories. And when He tells these stories in the New Testament, He says, No, nothing causes the heavens to celebrate in greater form than when one of mine repents. That, that is what thrills the angels and the saints in heaven above. It's like if a sheep gets lost, He'll leave these over here and go get this one because nothing parties. Like when one of these lost is found, and that's, what, that's, that's how we keep score in heaven. And so that's how we should keep score in church. That's how we apply non-conceit and spiritual, right, spiritual maturity. That's how we apply spiritual maturity in the local church at this church. It's called grace. Okay? You need to know that so that you'll be safe, so that you know you're safe. Say, let, next week, let's find out some more ways to apply very, very specifically on issues when people need help and maybe you could help them too much so that you're not even helping them anymore. It's a nice commercial for next week. Can't wait. Let's pray. Lord, Lord Jesus, uh, we lift up our lives to you, and and especially in this particular application-oriented passage, Lord, could you bring to our mind... Um, maybe people that we might need to have a conversation with because they're trapped. And they know they're trapped. They just need to be found out. And that you would give us the words to say and even the kind of the spirit to say it in. If there's people here that are trapped and they know they're trapped, they're caught, Lord, I'd ask that they would have the courage to do the next thing, to tell a friend or home group, fill out a form on a card, join, celebrate recovery, whatever it might be. But Lord, for our church, I pray this, that we would be um, courageous enough to be a place where you could send your children so that, and you would know they'd be safe. And if they ran off the path and got caught in some trap, that the spiritual people here, not the leadership, but every believer here that's a minister would do a search and rescue and find that person and lovingly bring them back to the path of righteousness. Let us be that type of church. Make us that type of church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.